For those who are just joining us, and if I haven't met you before, first, thank you for watching the kiddos during the first session. Uh, my name is Brandon Levering, and I'm happy to be back with you all here. Um, during our, our first session, we introduced our theme for the weekend, uh, Faithful Witness in a Polarized World. How do we bear faithful witness to the gospel in a world that just seems completely on edge, uh, where uh, every issue seems to divide us? We're, yeah, it's hard to remember a time when we've been so divided in our world, our communities, our families, over so many different things all at the same time. They just all seem to converge, to push us apart. And, and it's hard to recall a time when biblical Christianity has had such a diminishing influence on the broader culture. And yet our calling as the church remains clear. We are sent into the world as ambassadors for Christ, to make disciples for Christ through faithful gospel witness, to proclaim amid this polarized world, the good news of who God is and what he has done to deal with our sin, to establish his kingdom through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And so we started this first session uh, by considering the importance of rising above cancel culture. If we're ever going to uh, have any chance of bearing faithful witness to Christ in such a disputed and and, uh, contentious environment, We're not going to be able to do that unless we can escape that swirling vortex of judgment and scorn that just keeps sucking us down and holding us under in outrage and self-righteousness. We have to rise above that. And we saw in Psalm 123 how it's the mercy of Jesus that enables us to do that, to meet the constant contempt of this world with the gospel of peace. But we also need to break free from the predominant current that is sweeping our culture along and to help others be able to break free from it by throwing them the lifeline of the gospel. Faithful gospel witness involves not just announcing the good news of Jesus, but also dislodging whatever false gospels that this world uh, tends to promote and throw our ways. And there's perhaps no message more pervasive or influential today than what's called expressive individualism. Now, that is a $10 term that you may have never even heard before, and that's okay. Uh, But tell me if you've heard any of these phrases before. Follow your heart. You do you. Chase your dreams. You are enough. No matter what, be true to yourself. So expressive individualism is uh, both a familiar and foreign idea at the same time. It feels foreign because it's a big term. It's a technical term, a philosophical term, and it's not the kind of phrase we use in our daily conversation at work or school, right? And yet it's familiar because it's referring to the very cultural air we breathe, the common sense wisdom of our age. As Trevin Wax describes it, expressive individualism refers to the collective advice of our world that tells us that the purpose of life is to discover yourself by looking deep down and then express yourself to the world no matter what anyone else, family members, friends, colleagues, previous generations, or religious institutions might say. So you can think of virtually any 
uh, animated film from the last few decades. Or, or any number of popular books or movies or television shows. Every show is a story of self-discovery. Like the hero is on this journey of self-discovery, finding and forging your self-identity by shutting out all of the opposing voices and breaking the shackles of society's expectations. I mean, you can think of Frozen or Mulan or Moana or The Little Mermaid or Zootopia or Encanto or Luca. I mean, you just keep going down the list. And they're wonder- I love those movies. It's not, not a problem with those movies. But it's all the same plot when you stop and think about it. All these heroic stories of self-discovery. And we love those stories because that's our story too. Or at least we want it to be. We think it should be. According to the wisdom of our age. So much of everyday life is shaped by this narrative. It's what we teach our kids from their earliest days. You could be anything you want to be. right? Uh, it's, what you, it's what we tell our graduating seniors. Go chase your dreams and follow your heart. It's why so many people have midlife crises. We failed to achieve our dreams. We never found ourselves. Or we did, and it didn't satisfy, and it didn't last. It's why so many marriages fall apart. If the most important thing is to be true to yourself and to be happy, then anybody in my life who doesn't contribute to that the way I think they should is replaceable. And because I'm the most important thing. My happiness. It's why there's so much confusion in our world around gender and sexuality. Right? If it's up to me to determine who I am and what I want, then nobody else can tell me what is true or what is right or what is good. Not my parents, not my friends, not my body, not even God is allowed to tell me that. It's this sweeping current that, that just seems to be picking up everything in its, in its flow in our culture. And if we're going to show the truth and beauty of the gospel... We need to understand what we're dealing with and and be able to expose the emptiness of a follow-your-heart worldview. It just, it doesn't compare to the gospel. So to help us do that, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 6. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and make your way. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20, where Paul addresses what we might call the myth of self-ownership. The myth of self-ownership. I'm going to read those verses for us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, and God raised the Lord and will also raise up us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know 
that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, if you are familiar with uh, the Corinthian church in the first century, uh, or familiar with the books of First and Second Corinthians, you'll probably remember that the church in Corinth there uh, was a bit of a mess. They, they were divided by selfish interests. They were deluded by worldly concerns. And one of the contributing factors to the train wreck that was the church in Corinth uh, was uh, you know, the train wreck in, that showed itself in terms of spiritual immaturity or tolerance for, for sin. One of the contributing factors was the assumption that they somehow, in Christ, they belonged to themselves. That being free in Christ meant that they were their own, and therefore free to do whatever they wanted, particularly with what they did with their own bodies and the temptations of sexual immorality and fornication, which is what Paul is addressing in our passage. And you can see that that myth of self-ownership. We are, we are our own. We belong to ourselves. You see that idea showing up in the very first verses of our, of our text here, the logic of the Corinthians here. Verse 12 again, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And, and you'll notice in your Bibles, most of your Bibles will put the phrase, all things are lawful for me in quotes. That's because what Paul is doing, he's either quoting the Corinthians or he's anticipating the logic of the Corinthians. This is the way they think. And then he's, so he's quoting them and then responding to it. So when he says, all things are lawful for me, again, he's quoting or anticipating. And, and then he gives his correction, but not all things are helpful. Not all things, I will be mastered by, by nothing. And so what the Corinthians are saying with this phrase, all things are lawful for me or permissible for me, Basically, what they're saying is that in Christ, I have the right to do whatever I want. That was the implication or application they were attempting to draw from the gospel of Jesus. I set my own rules. I am a law to myself. And, and how do I establish those rules? Well, based on my own desires. What do I want to do? That's what I'm going to do. My hungers and my appetites. That's what you see in verse 13, where again, Paul quotes the Corinthians' logic, and then he responds. They say, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. I think the quote goes all the way to the end of the sentence. So that's their phrase. According to the wisdom of, of the Corinthians, the body is meant to be fed. That's what it's for. Food is for the stomach and stomach for food. And, and it's meant to be fed, whether, you know, food, as their analogy, or sex, which is what they're actually talking about with their analogy. Their bodies exist simply to be satisfied and to glorify themselves. They exist for a temporary pleasure, because God's going to destroy the body anyway. So we might as well pursue our pleasure and fulfill our desires. Everything is back on the menu. Whatever we desire, even fornication and visiting prostitutes, which is what they were doing based on that logic, right? And, and that's what Paul corrects them for in the rest of verse 13. He says, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, 
but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Our bodies do not exist for temporary pleasure. They have an eternal purpose in the Lord. And so, so it just sounds crazy to us to think that, that, a, that a church following Jesus would be okay with half of their members visiting prostitutes on occasion. Like, that just sounds outlandish to us. How in the world did they arrive at that conclusion? Where did they go wrong? Well, it's the assumption that they belong to themselves now. This is where Paul goes. It's as if Christ purchased them out of slavery simply to gain some new autonomous freedom in which they could face the world on their own. And this is not at all unlike the myth of self-ownership that, that dominates our culture today. Uh, Alan Noble describes it with the mantra, I am my own and I belong to myself. That is the creed of the modern individual. I am my own and I belong to myself. That is the fundamental lie of, mater- of modernity, that we are our own. And, and so that's what expressive individualism tells us, that you are your own and you belong to yourself, which might sound liberating, might even sound exhilarating to some of us. And yet, as Noble explains, the myth of self-ownership comes at a great price. He writes that once I'm liberated from all social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. With no God to judge or justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. This burden manifests itself as a desperate need to justify our lives through identity crafting and expression. And and so the journey of of self-discovery and self-expression, it begins. And, and, and it's this journey that so many of us are just, we're constantly on without even realizing what we're doing. Uh, Trevin Wax, uh, in his book called Rethink Yourself, which if you're looking for like, I don't know what Brandon's talking about right now, I need some help. It is, uh, it is the, the best introduction to the gospel and expressive individualism that I've read, the simplest and clearest too. Um, but he, he describes this process of, identity crafting and expression. He, he writes, the way you find fulfillment in life, this is the wisdom of our age here, the way you find fulfillment in life is to look inside yourself. I even have graphics for this. <laughs> to look inside yourself uh, as an individual and determine what is unique about you, wh- who you are deep down. You are responsible for defining yourself. No one else can do this for you. And defining yourself requires you to get in touch with the deepest desires of your heart. It's only when you discover uh, your deepest desires that you can be assured that your identity of your identity and purpose in life. You basically you are what you want. Your desires tell you who you are. And once you've discovered those desires and defined your identity accordingly, well, now it's time to put yourself on display to find people who will celebrate what it is that makes you unique. Even when we discover our true self or create our own identity, we still need some kind of external validation. And so we have to express that to the world. And yet, as you go through life, you find yourself changing. And whenever your desires shift, the image that you want to put on display 
shifts as well. And so you might reach a point where you actually feel inauthentic. Or maybe you once felt special and unique, and now you see that everybody else is just like you. And so you begin a process of reinvention by looking deep within yourself one more time to come up with a new you, a new design to be true to. And it's, this is the obligation of self-ownership. If this is how we find our identity and our significance in the world, if I belong to myself and I am my own, this is the game we must play indefinitely. If I am my own and I belong to myself, it's not just that I can define myself according to my desires and then display that. I must do it. That's how the world works. To put it in religious terms, again to quote Wax here, if the first and greatest commandment is to be yourself, then the unforgivable sin is to be false or to wilt before some external measure that others like the church might foist upon you. And thus the solution is reassertion, not repentance. That's the solution. Make them see who you are. And anyone who doesn't affirm that or get in the anybody who stands in the way of yourself, your chosen identity is toxic and harmful. And yet, to complicate matters even further, so we're all doing this thing, right? To complicate it even further, everybody else is doing it at the same time. We're all competing against each other in our self-creation and, and manufacture. We're, as, as Noble puts it, we're all on our own private journey of self-discovery and self-expression so that at times, modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their name so that everyone knows that they exist and who they are, which feels an awful lot like modern social media, right? We're all just putting ourselves on display competing for attention so that we'll feel validated like we've got some sort of meaningful existence. I am my own and I belong to myself. My desires shape my identity and then I display that to the world. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. Everything is lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved to anything. The cold, hard reality of expressive individualism is that what looks and feels like freedom is in fact slavery. It's slavery. To assert our self-ownership is to secure our own defeat. That's what's really going on. Because not everything we give ourselves permission to do is actually good for us. And we all know that. We, I mean, I might think that I have permission. I'm an adult. I can eat as much ice cream as I want. I give myself permission to do that. Doesn't mean that's good for me, right? We know that. And here's the, the even bigger danger, is that not all appetites that we feed are, are able to be kept under control. Sometimes those appetites take over and we begin serving the appetite instead of it serving us. It slowly consumes us. Our desires deceive us. Our self-display flickers and fades. Our journey of self-discovery leaves us constantly empty and insecure because if you don't validate me, then who am I anyway? 
none of us have the virtue or power to pull it off in any lasting or satisfying way. And whether we acknowledge it or not, here's the next level, whether we acknowledge it or not, our vain pursuit ultimately puts us at at odds with the God who made us. We might think, I've got all of this freedom to craft my identity and display it to the world, and yet, not only is that a a fool's errand, it, it puts me at odds with the God that I will actually, the God who made me and the God that I will stand before one day. I might, uh, as much as we might like to claim to to be a law to ourselves with the exclusive right to decide what is good and right, none of that changes the fact that we will answer to our Lord. I mean, if I get pulled over for speeding, maybe I was trying to catch the boat on time uh, to Sandy Island, as much as I might believe it in my heart and say to the officer, I'm actually the captain of my own destiny, I was following my heart, who... I'm still going to get a ticket, right? None of that changes the reality of God's authority over us as our maker, our redeemer, our king, and our judge. And and so our journey of self-discovery, it's often driven by self-delusion. You put it all in theological terms, expressive individualism is nothing more than the nightmare that Paul describes in Romans 1. Claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So, How does the gospel of Jesus flip the script on this predominant cultural narrative? How do we hold out a lifeline to those drowning and being swept up in this current to who knows where? If the common sense wisdom of our age is truly foolishness, then how does the person and work of Jesus show us a better way? Well, Paul's answer to the myth of self-ownership is to remind us that that's exactly what it is. It's a myth. We are not our own. We do not belong to ourselves. Rather, we belong to God, and in Christ, we have been bought with a price. True freedom and lasting satisfaction come from belonging to Jesus Christ. That's the point Paul makes in several ways in our passage in chapter 6. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? We belong to him. Verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Again and again, Paul emphasizes our spiritual union with Jesus. We are united with him. We belong to him. To believe in Christ is to be joined with Christ. And if we're joined with him, then then feeding ungodly hungers like sexual immorality or fornication or discovering our desires and pursuing them at all costs using our bodies for our own satisfaction or glorification, 
These are neither acceptable nor honorable ways, nor satisfying ways to live. They dishonor God, they defile his presence within us, and they damage us. They damage us. But someone might say, well, if I can't follow my heart, how will I ever be happy? If I can't be true to myself, how will I ever know who I am or find my way? Our true identity, our lasting happiness, doesn't come from asserting our self-ownership, but from joyfully losing ourselves in Jesus Christ by belonging to him. That is Paul's conclusion. That is who you are and where your hope is found. If you look at the middle of verse 19, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. For as much as we spend our lives trying to discover ourselves, trying to define ourselves, so as to cobble together some sort of meaningful existence, some recognition of our value or... or, or, uh, As much as we run that rat race, Jesus has already told us how valuable you are. Enough to shed his blood to purchase you. That's how valuable you are. To purchase us for himself and make us his own. And and don't miss the significance of that. That's not just his his willingness to buy us with his own blood to purchase us. is not just a sign of how valuable we are you know, what Christ was willing to spend. How much, you, know, you go to a rummage sale, how much are you going to spend on this trinket? It depends on how much you want it, right? How valuable it is to you. He was willing to spend everything to get us. But that doesn't just tell us how valuable we are. It also tells us how sufficient his grace is, how loving he is toward us. Left to ourselves, we're not just wasting our energy in a journey of self-discovery that's ultimately going to let us down. Again, we are heaping up guilt and sin, sin that must be punished. Apart from Christ, we're always exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We're always worshiping something created rather than the creator. If Christ is not our master, we are enslaved to sin and death, whether we realize it or not. And no amount of self-discovery And self-expression can undo that. But when Paul says that we've been bought with a price, he's telling us that Christ paid our debt to set us free from that sin, from that death. The punishment we deserved for our sin was poured out on Christ in our place so that through faith in him, we could be set free. And that price of our freedom, again, it was his very life. As 1 Peter 1.19 puts it, the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In the passage that we have here, Paul uses the imagery of an ancient slave market to kind of help us understand this new identity that we've received. So you can picture the scene. You know, there we are, chained to our sin, simultaneously emaciated, by, by sin's deception and engorged on, on our own self-indulgence. And along comes Christ to set us free. He gives his life in exchange for ours. He buys us at the price of his own precious blood. He rescues us not so that we can be, you know, we can pursue our own devices 
which will ultimately just land us back on the slave block again. Instead, he purchases us for his own kingdom, to redeem us for his own family, to reclaim us for our created purpose. God's design that we would display his glory, having our desires aligned with Christ's desires. True freedom and satisfaction come from belonging to Jesus. There is nothing else that will satisfy that longing, that urge, that hunger, than to know Christ. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. And there's perhaps no greater summary of this truth, I think, than the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. And, and I want us to say this together. Here's the question. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? And God's people said that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Brothers, sisters, that is good news. That is good news. News. That is comfort. That is hope that no journey of self-discovery can provide. That's value that no amount of, of affirmation from others can supply. The gospel of Jesus frees us from the rat race. It liberates us. It rescues us from expressive individualism. It liberates your friends and your family and your coworkers and everybody else who's caught in that stream of trying to find themselves and prove themselves and and somehow make a meaningful existence. We have a better story in Jesus. And and I want to just think for a few minutes about the freedom of belonging to Christ. What difference does this really make to belong to Jesus rather than to belong to myself? First, if I belong to Jesus, I don't have to justify my own existence. If I belong to Jesus, I don't have to justify my own existence. I've messed up in this world, and I will continue to. I will continue to make mistakes. Many of my best efforts and intentions will produce mediocre results, right? It's true. But my righteousness, my value, the sum of my life are not based on what I can do, but what Christ has done for me. He is my justification. If I belong to Jesus, I don't have to find myself or discover my identity. If I belong to Jesus, I don't have to find myself or discover my identity. I just have to listen to him. He tells me who I am, made in his image, inherently valuable, designed for his purposes. And that is true for all humanity. Not just Christians, 
But for the Christian, and only for the, the one with faith in Christ, that list goes gloriously on. I am beloved, chosen, rescued, redeemed, forgiven, a child of God, united with Christ, a temple of the Holy Spirit, a people for his own possession. That's who I am. If I belong to Jesus, I'm no longer enslaved to my desires. I'm no longer enslaved to my desires. I can say no to those desires that I'm looking toward to try and find myself. If those desires lead me or push me away from Jesus, I can say no to them and yes to Christ. Paul says in, in Titus 2, 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. So if I belong to Christ, I'm free to follow his word and his will, his good design, rather than having to write my own rules. If I belong to Jesus, I don't have to clamor or compete for attention in displaying myself. Right? Well, while we're all busy shouting our name in a room with a billion other people trying to be noticed, our Lord has our name engraved on the palm of his hand. He is always aware of who we are and where we are. We don't have to clamor for attention in this world. Our Lord knows us and will never forget us. He's always mindful of us. If I belong to Jesus, I don't have to constantly reinvent myself. My identity is confirmed. My future is secure. My community and my relationships are fixed, not by my uniqueness or, or, or what people think of me, but having been bought and bound together by the blood of Christ. I don't have to constantly reinvent myself. If I belong to Jesus, I have a clear and wonderful purpose. A clear and wonderful purpose. My body, my life, my possessions, my relationships, my story, they don't exist for my personal temporary satisfaction, but for serving the Lord, for his honor and glory. A service that can take all sorts of shapes and take me to all sorts of places as the Lord directs my steps and equips me for service. And if I belong to Jesus, I don't have to star in my own story. If I belong to Jesus, I don't have to star in my own story. I'm content to play a supporting role in the story of Christ. To follow his word, to serve his mission, to joyfully lose myself. Because in him, I have something so much better. As Paul puts it in, in Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had from this world, from my identity, from all of that rat race, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. I don't have to find myself if I'm found in Jesus. That is a message that we, as the church, need to hold fast to. We need to hold fast to. And it is a message that our world desperately needs to hear. There are a lot of hurting people in this world 
who think that it is on their shoulders to prove their worth to the world, and they're being told that there's a thousand different ways to do that, and a lot of them are completely destroying their souls, and sometimes their bodies. There is a message of hope and freedom that Jesus has that we can bring a lifeline out of that current that true freedom and lasting satisfaction comes not from belonging to myself, but from belonging to Jesus. We have a better story than anything this world can offer. And tomorrow morning, what we're going to do is just wade onto that solid shore and bask in the unparalleled beauty and power of the gospel But as we conclude this morning, may we remember and may we remind one another and the others that we meet around us, again, that true freedom freedom and lasting satisfaction come from belonging to Christ. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, how can we say thank you enough for the freedom and hope that we have in Jesus? Lord, help us not keep that to ourselves. Help us see the beautiful opportunity and the desperate need that even in this polarized world where we're afraid of stepping on a landmine and blowing up in our face, that that we have a message our world desperately needs, that Jesus is enough and that there is no life or no hope apart from him. Lord, give us the clarity and the courage to hold out the gospel of peace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.